Well, good morning. <laughs> Glad you're with us this morning. And if you are visiting, we'd love to see you over at the table after the service or any of you uh, who want to go grab a cup of coffee there. It's really a, a privilege to be able to know that when we look at the scriptures, we have absolute confidence that God's word is true and has authority in our lives. So I'm excited to be able to share again the scriptures with you. I, I never drive in on a Sunday morning without declaring to God gratitude for his great grace in my life, gratitude for this body of believers and the family that we are, and gratitude for his word that we get to be able to look at it together. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have one with you, or if you have a, a digital copy, let me invite you to turn Second Corinthians chapter 9. Now at the beginning of the message, we're going to look at a bunch of separate passages, so I encourage you to just follow along on what I show up on the screen. But then we're going to settle in at the end on 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So let me invite you to turn there so you'll be there when we go there. This, if you're visiting with us this morning, is our third week at looking at Jesus encountering givers. This is the final week, by the way. And it started in Mark 12. It started where Jesus was in Jerusalem at the temple, at the treasury in the temple, and he was watching people give, something that you and I would kind of be uncomfortable with. He was literally watching who gave, how they gave, and how much they gave. That's what the text tells us, that he saw rich people giving, he saw poor people giving. He saw people giving out of their surplus, and he saw other people giving out of their poverty. He saw large sums of being given, and then he saw the widow who gave everything that she had, even though it was only a penny, two coins that amounted to a penny. And he brought his disciples together and he said, hey guys, check out what that widow just did amounts to, she gave more than everybody else, all of their large sums combined together. Now, he, she didn't give more in terms of amount. She gave more in terms of generosity and sacrifice because he walked away with nothing and they walked away with most because they had only given out of their surplus. So it, it prompted us to ask some investigative questions regarding giving as it specifically relates to the New Testament. And so we answered four questions. First, who does the New Testament say is intended to give? Who? Every believer is intended to give. And the reason, and this is what has been so compelling for me in these three weeks, is the answer to the question, why would every believer give, is, I hope you get this, it's because of our oneness in Christ. When, when we place faith in Jesus to be our forgiver, we who are separated become one with him. So oneness is not only a vertical oneness with God, it is a oneness with one another, that we become a spiritual family. And we give because we're family. We share because we're family. We do for one another what we might not do for others because we are family. We're one vertically and we're one horizontally. Then the question of how. How do we give? And we went through lots of scripture last week. And to sum up, we said we're to give in cheerful 
readiness. Cheerful, not, not begrudgingly, not under compulsion, and in readiness. Because lots of people, lots of us can hope to give, even want to give, even intend to give. But if we're not ready to give, we'll never give. So the how is in cheerful readiness. Now, that's all lots of words of which you're politely listening. But when it comes to giving, I think most people want to know, bottom line, what's the question? How much? See, you all know. How, how much? How much are we supposed to give? And maybe you were surprised last week if you were here. The New Testament, in answer to the question, how much, does not say 10%. Doesn't say it. That was an Old Testament practice that had good reasonings to it, but the New Testament does not indicate that every believer is intended to give 10%. It says every believer is to give because of their oneness in Christ and to do so cheerfully and be ready to give. And the how much is rooted in three principles in the New Testament. Generosity, as God has prospered, and as I purpose in my heart. There is no flat tax that we run across the board. There is generously, as God has prospered me, and I purpose in my own heart. That's dramatically different than what many of us have been taught and some of us have practiced. That I don't just... Okay, 10% to pay my God tax, the rest is mine. And we don't think of it that way because of this. When it comes to our lives, all of our stuff, if we could put it into a pot, we would tend to think, well, it's my stuff. It's my minutes. It's my family. It's my life. It's my job. It's my income. It's my salary. It's my retirement. It's all mine. But when I realize I'm guilty before a holy God and Christ has paid the penalty for my sin. There's nothing I can do to earn it, to pay it back. I can only receive it as a gift. When I place faith in him, here's something dramatic that happens. I become, watch, the New Testament says, I become a person in Christ. The fact that I am in Jesus is the hope of my eternal salvation. Not my faith, his faithfulness. Not what I've done, but what he has done. This is why the scripture says, if we're in Christ, no one is able to pluck us from the Father's hand because it's not us, it's him. We are in Jesus. Now here's the kicker. If we are in Jesus... All the stuff that used to be mine is now, hmm, hmm. Everything that was mine is now his. My job is really his. My family is really his. My kids are really his. My income is really his. My savings account is his. My retirement is his. It, it belongs to him. And so I move, when I become in Christ, I move from owner of my stuff to steward 
of his stuff. And as a steward of his stuff, I need to now, as a steward, go, all right, how am I going to spend his money? And as a steward, how am I going to save his money? How much do I spend of his? How much do I save of his? And then third, how much do I share of his money? I'm using this because remember, uh, we, we said generally, if we keep all of our peanuts in one bowl, we'll swallow them all up. That's straight out of Proverbs. The foolish man swallows everything up. So we need to put it in separate bowls, what we spend, what we save, and what we share. This is readiness. This is all review so far. Do you have your three bowls? All right, so last week, we started the Monday morning quarterback, come at 7.30 to the table, and you can ask the same question. A guy shows up, and he goes, I'm running to work, but I got a question. We have our sharing bowl. We just wonder, who should we give it to? That's the question. The question of to whom? We've got our, we've got our peanuts in here that we said, we're not going to eat them ourselves. We're not going to save them for labor. We're going to share them. Who do I give them to? Who do I give them to? All right. He asks. You have not because you ask not. Do we, give them, do, do we share with everybody who asks? Hmm. I can tell that the kids all said yes because that's what their mommies taught them. All the moms said no. <laughs> do, do we give to everybody who asks? Oh, we have to decide. Oh, should we? So, should I give to you? Okay. We give to the, the children who give us the sad eyes. Give to you? Ah, eh, you don't need any. You ever do that? You ever think, oh, I should, ah, they don't really need it. You ever intend to give something? Then you went, ah, they don't really need it. Here's what, here's what has been so helpful to me. When I look back, maybe I wasn't listening in church. That's quite possible. But the only thing I remember is give 10%. To the question, though, of to whom... Nobody really ever answered that question. And the Bible does answer it. It just takes a little bit of work because it's not just captured in some simple verses. Give here, give here, give here, give here. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to do my very best to help you see the five areas that the scripture speaks to the question of to whom. And I'm going to share it with you in the context of what I call this ladder of giving integrity. As a ladder, it has five steps, five rungs to it, and we're going to work from the bottom to the top because you go from a, up a ladder. So the priority, bottom to the top. It sits on a foundation that we've already established, but I don't want you to miss. Again, it sits on the foundation of our sharing is rooted that we have been made one. One with Christ, one with one another. Because we have been made one, it's no longer mine, it is 
his. And therefore, I've moved from ownership to stewardship. I am managing his resources. And because I'm managing his resources, what I must do is be ready. Not to swallow up everything I have, but to be ready to share. So the foundation for giving is oneness, stewardship, readiness. Now to the question of to whom. Well, the scripture says, first ladder, and you may think, ah, oh, this doesn't seem like giving, but you'll see in a moment, that myself and family. Because 2 Thessalonians 3 says this very strongly. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Wow, that's strong. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Too much time in your hands, so you're always meddling in other people's stuff. What does the word of God say to that person? Get a, get a job. That's very simple. Now, now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work, get a job in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. First rung in the ladder is get a job, work, or don't eat. That's not Captain John Smith. That's Jesus of Nazareth. Second, category, our elderly parents, still within the family frame, our physical family, elderly parents, equally strong language. First Timothy 5, 3 says, honor widows who are widows indeed. Now that's a unique expression, widows indeed. What's he mean? Well, there are widows that the church is responsible to provide for, and there are widows that the family is to provide for. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has, whoo, this is strong, denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So to have resources and swallow it all up so that you have nothing to share with your mom or your dad when they are at a place where they can no longer provide for themselves, he says, that's worse than an unbeliever. Now, I will grant you, parenting, elderly parents, is tricky business because they're not used to being parented by their kids. So I'm not suggesting it's always easy, and there's some hard questions that come into play in this. But we should, in cheerful readiness, understand that it's not the government's responsibility to provide for our parents. It's our responsibility to be ready when they cannot provide for themselves to be able to provide for them. It's, it's simple doing for them what they had done to you. Over Labor Day weekend, the whole family was in town and 
So we, Jackie and I, treated everyone to sushi because I love me some sushi. But then I got the bill and I was like, whew. And it prompted me to say, there's a day coming where you guys are buying me sushi and I'm not buying you sushi. Just make sure you are ready. <laughs> third ladder, third rung, local church. The local church. These passages, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 5, have been very clear. Local church requires some explanation. Most simple is Galatians 6, 6 that says this. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So the biblical principle is that there is a reciprocation that happens where there is spiritually invested in some that those would materially invest in those who spiritually invest in them. That's Galatians 6, 6. Now I put in your message memo, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14 as part of this rung of this ladder. And there, Paul takes 14 verses to give six reasons why a person who is engaged in the work of the gospel has as their right to receive their living from the gospel. And he goes through, like I said, six different reasons. Well, in verses first, first 13 verses, he goes through five of them. The sixth, I think, is like his clincher, meaning if you don't buy the other five, and you can read them on your own, if you don't buy the other five, then at least hear this one. So also the Lord directed. So argue with everything else, but in this one, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So very simply, where those who are investing spiritually children's ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, there is a reciprocation, spiritual investment, material investment in the local church. The Lord has directed it. So first, family. Second, extended family, elderly parents. Third, the spiritual family that you worship with, your local church. Fourth, poor believers. This one isn't easily summarized so much in a single verse. I'll show you one in a moment. But the vast majority of actual passages about giving in the New Testament are in this category. Let me explain. The church began in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. Peter stood up, preached. Thousands are born again. And the church begins to share life together. But then the book of Acts tells us persecution comes and like a hammer on hot flames, the embers get scattered out from the persecution and believers are scattered in beyond Jerusalem and they take the gospel with them as well as the apostles take the Lord's command clearly and obediently. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So from Jerusalem, where the church began, new churches spring up. The apostle Paul 
when he was Saul and persecuting the church, actually part of that persecution, has a dramatic conversion experience and ends up in Jerusalem meeting the apostles. And they determine that he is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles and Peter was going to take the gospel to the Jews. While this persecution continues, it becomes clear that the believers in Jerusalem cannot support themselves. They can't do 2 Thessalonians 3. They need help. And no one within Jerusalem can help them because they're all in the same circumstance. So churches in other cities determine, under the apostles' leadership, that they were going to take an offering and that offering would be collected and taken to Jerusalem to help the poor believers who are under persecution for the gospel there. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is all about. He has said, we said, you promised that you were in Corinth going to give to those who are in need and we're coming to collect, be, be ready. Be ready to give. Now, would the people in Corinth have ever met the people in Jerusalem? Most likely not. It's not a culture like we have today where people are seeing one another all the time. So these folks would have been complete strangers. Why would complete strangers in a church in Corinth give to poor believers in Jerusalem? Why? Yeah, this is what I hope you're capturing because they are one, their family. Yes, brothers, sisters, moms, dads in Christ. So when Paul leaves Jerusalem to take the gospel to the Gentiles and Peter is going to take it to the Jews, Galatians 2.10, writing to the Galatians, Paul says, they, the apostles, only ask us to remember the poor, specifically Poor believers, the very thing I also was eager to do. So the fourth rung on the ladder, poor believers, remember the language of scripture is remember the poor. And now the fifth, gospel expansion. Gospel expansion. Again, this takes a little explanation. From Philippians 4. Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, what's funny to me is this. Almost everybody knows Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You understand what he's saying? He is saying, hey, I believe fully and completely in the sufficient provision of Christ. And thank you for being it. You have done well to be it. In other words, if you wouldn't have come through, Christ would have been my full supply. But don't miss this. We said it last week. Let me say it again. The provision of God for the people of God almost always comes through other people of God. The miraculous work of God's provision is usually in the heart of generosity. And the person who says, man, I could have spent all my peanuts. I could have saved more peanuts, but I'm going to share with others. 
That's how the provision of God usually happens. And so he says, hey, I, I trust in the sufficiency of Christ for everything. Uh, thank you. Nevertheless, thank you for sharing with me. You do well when you share with me. How did they do that? Watch. Verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your, those who gave, to your account. Here's what he's saying. Paul had gone to Philippi, a city, and he had declared the gospel there. And people had responded, and a church was born. And he had built into those people. And he had already declared that it's right to receive material supply for those who are spiritually giving. So he could have received in Philippi. But then he left Philippi. Do these people have any responsibility now to, pro to provide for Paul? Because he is no longer there among them. They don't. He is not part of their local church anymore. They don't have a responsibility, but he says, you do well. When I go to Thessalonica and I try to do in Thessalonica what I did in Philippi, if you, back in Philippi, give to me so that I can do in Thessalonica what I did back there and not be a burden to the people in Thessalonica. I can bring the gospel to them without charge because you provided for me. And he's gone, way to go, guys. You did for me what no other church did. And you did it more than once. You did more than invest in those who were investing in you. You invested in those who were investing in somebody else for the purpose of gospel expansion. And he says, you do well. Five categories. Family, parents, elderly parents, local church, poor believers, gospel expansion. Whom should we give? The scripture gives it. And I believe gives us in priority from the way we would go up a ladder because of strength of language. Get, get rid of all the extra here and just look at the strength of the language, not my words, what the scripture says. If you don't provide for yourself, family, no work, no eat. If you don't provide for your elderly parents, worse than an unbeliever. The Lord has directed that you share with the local church. Remember poor believers who you'll never meet but need help. And you do well when you invest in someone who is investing and others. You see the strength of language? If not, just think you have a teenage boy and you want him to take the trash out. Are there ways that you can say it that are more powerful than other ways? Track with me. My son, Tommy, who's not a teenager anymore. Hey, Tom, take out the trash or you don't eat. 
Okay, that says something to my boy. Hey, Tom, take out the trash, or you're worse than an unbeliever. Hey, Tom, I'm telling you, take out the trash. Hey, Tom, remember to take out the trash. Hey, Tom, you do well if you take out the trash. That's a big difference, isn't it? Well, we clearly learn in our house. Suggestions are easily ignored. Commands are more likely to happen. Commands with consequences get done. (laughs) Folks, you see the ladder of integrity? And I call it integrity for this reason. One One of the greatest moments for me here at the chapel, I was a school teacher here in town, just attending here like you not on staff. And I'll, I remember those who uh, went before me, I'm so grateful for them, saying, as we take our offering this morning, understand this. If you have elderly parents in need, you should make sure you're taking care of them first. I was like, did that guy just say don't put money in the plate? But to take care, wow, was biblical priority. And I say it integrity for this. When, when Jackie's father passed away, her mom needed help. Imagine if we would have said, because when Jackie and I came out of college, this is my confession, I'm going to walk you through this journey. When we came out of Bible college, our peanuts went to We didn't make much, so we provided for ourselves, and we invested in gospel expansion because of all of our friends who went to Columbia, and they were missionaries, and that'd be fun to invest in them. So we did here and here. It was skip, skip, skip. Now, we didn't have elderly parents at the time who needed help, but we weren't giving anything to the local church. Why not? Ah, they got enough. It wasn't until here as a member of this congregation, did I hear very clearly, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are to materially invest in those who spiritually invest in you. So Jackie and I literally had to change our giving practices based on what the scripture said. Then dad died. And we couldn't just ignore mom. I mean, think about it. She lived up in Florence, South Carolina. We had certainly met the neighbors many times. If neighbors see an elderly woman not being cared for, and they've met the kids who go to church, and one of them's a pastor, and they're not providing, they're not helping, and I go and I go, and they say to me, hey, why aren't you helping? I go, well, you know, the church. That makes zero sense, even to an unbeliever. An unbeliever goes, they are family. You're one, you take care of family. So I said it and I say it again. I am so grateful that as a member of this church, I was taught the scriptures that had us ready, biblically ready to be able to provide for mom when she needed it. And we were prepared to provide as much as she needed. 
as unto the Lord. Does it count if you give it to mom? That's what somebody asked me. Does it, does it count? I mean, I know it counts if you give it to the church. Does it count if you give it to mom? Well, if you're buying her, her 24th pair of earrings, no. <laughs> that's not what the passage is talking about. I mean, that's nice. Do that for your mama. She'll appreciate it. But that's not what the passage is talking about. What's the passage talking about? The passage is talking about if there's needs and you're not helping, you're worse than an unbeliever. That's strong stuff. And so our giving patterns had to change again for integrity. Still providing as God gave us kids, providing for her mom as there was need, giving to the local church. Yes, a pastor. Uh, my kids go, Dad, that's really weird. You give to the church. It's like giving to yourself. Uh, the church is a lot, lot bigger than me. So we definitely give to our local church. We were still supporting missionaries, but completely whiffing on this one. And it's because I didn't really understand how clear in scriptures that that was what most of the giving in the New Testament was actually about. What the New Testament was mostly talking about was completely absent for me. And so it was to, well, let me, let me just make sure I'm clear here. Are there brothers and sisters of yours in Christ who live in the world who do not have what they need because they are under persecution for following Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. Will you probably meet, meet them? Probably not. Only in heaven. But you are family. We are one. And so, whether it's through opendoorsusa.org, through Hope International, you would go, we need to help the poor, their family. Now, you may go, you don't care about poor unbelievers? Yeah, I do. It's one of the great strategies for gospel expansion. So I'm not saying only poor believers, just understand helping the poor and bringing it with the gospel was actually one of Jesus's primary strategies. He ministered to the poor and he brought the kingdom of God with it. So there's lots of organizations in our world that help poor people, but don't bring the gospel with it. As the people of God, we should bring help to the poor with the gospel. So maybe you need to adjust. Now you've been in 2 Corinthians 9, all this. Let's look there. It said in verse 7, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So our great privilege, the great privilege we have is to be cheerful and generous in our giving as God prospers us. That's our privilege. But every once in a while, I know it happens to me, I gotta believe it happens to you, that sometimes our sharing causes us, we shrink back either because of fear and we go, oh, maybe I ought to save a little more. Or sometimes, this can happen to us, we get a little selfish and go, oh, I'll spend a little more. Sometimes fear, sometimes selfishness, it, it gets at us. And we get afraid of sharing. 
And I want you to see this morning the incredible promises of God to those who go, now I am going to share. Next verse. And God is able. Able to do what? To make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything so you have what you need, you may have an abundance for what? Don't miss this. You have an abundance for every good deed. See, the promise of God is that he gives an abundance for what? An abundance for good deeds. He provides sufficiency for us, but where there's abundance, the abundance is for good deeds. You, you, you got it? Do you think God gives abundance for good deeds? Is that a promise? You seem very unconvinced. So he says it again. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, so that's the need now, will supply and, word? Multiply, what's that mean? That means more seed, more seed for saving. For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. See, God promises, I'll meet your need, and when I give you abundance, it will be for good deeds. And if you'll sow, I will give you more seed for, for sharing. For More seed is for sowers. You see, I love what the Scripture's saying here, that if... If I give you seed and you say, well, thank you, I, I'll save that for later. And I give you seed and more seed and you go, I'm going to sow it. If you save and you sow and I have more seed, who am I going to give it to? And why? Well, you go, of course, sower. Why? Because seed is for sowing to bring a harvest, not for saving and to rot. God is no dummy. Seriously, he goes, sowers, more seed for them because they get what seed is for. You get it? Does God promise abundance for good deeds and seed for sowers? No, 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 more seed for sowers. Yes? Uh, a little more convinced, but not fully. So he says it again. Verse 11, you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality. Thursday night, a guy goes, well, what's all this? God's going to make you rich for being liberal. <laughs> Politically charged world, completely missed the text. Liberality in what context? Forgiving. There's a big difference between when I put the syrup on my kids' pancakes and they put the syrup on the kid, their pancakes. The one who... Bought it, that's enough. The one who didn't buy it, saturate until then there's soup to dip in. That's liberality, right? What's God promise for sowers? Enrichment for all liberality. More seed, abundance for good deeds. See, 
what my burden is this, folks, is people have perverted this text and said, if you'll give to God, then he'll make you rich and give you everything you want. It's just not what it says. But let's not throw out the text. Let's, let's believe what it says. And what it says is, what? If you'll give and if you'll sow, God will give you more for sowing. Do you believe that? <laughs> yeah, and more will happen. He says this ministries not only supply the needs of the saints, it's overflowing through many thanksgivings to God because of the proof given by his ministry. They're going to glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them. So in other words, if you will do according to what God has said, then they're going to give praise to God because that's what people who don't and then have go, whoo, thank you, God. And they not only say, thank you, God, they give praise to God. Next verse, they also, by prayer on your behalf, the recipients praying for who? The contributor, you, yearning for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. See, the response is not only praise to God, but prayers of receivers for contributors. So I love this passage because it shows us three categories. It shows us the privilege to cheerfully and generously give. It shows us the promises of God to support that privilege. And it shows us the response of those who will receive their praise and prayer. Now, one quick thing. Watch. Look up here. When it comes to the promises of God to do what he said, are they a yes, no, or a maybe? What are they, folks? Yes. yes. Come on. They're a yes. When it comes. So uh, I, I realize people perverted it, so we're reluctant to say it. It's what it says. More seed, multiplied seed for sower. Abundance for good deeds. Enriched for liberality. Don't get the perversion, but don't shrink back from the truth. That's a yes. And what did the scripture say? Will recipients whose needs are met. Will they praise and will they give thanks? Yes. Will you engage your privilege? <laughs> Folks, honestly, that's the great question mark. It's honestly the great question mark. No uncertainty here with God. No uncertainty here. The only uncertainty is right here in this heart of mine that can get sticky and selfish, get affected by covetousness, get afraid and dump more into saving. That's the only thing that's, it's the only thing that's the maybe on the chart. And he, in this passage, gives this so that this question mark would become a Yes. Do you believe his promises? Do you believe his promises? Let's stand and declare it.
great to go from not knowing the promises of God to knowing the promises of God. But there is one thing better than knowing the promises of God. Experiencing the promises of God. Not just knowing here, but having a story that I went from what felt like responsible and I took a step into generosity God was faithful. So much so that I took another step into generosity and God was faithful. Would it be that in the coming years we would accumulate not knowledge but stories believing that he'll provide seed for sowers abundance for good deeds enrichment for all liberality. It's taking him at his word to the praise of his glory and to the joy of the people of God. And you'll get prayed for in the process. God bless. Thanks for being here.